0: Second Timothy, chapter number 2, and verse 14 says, Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings for they will increase unto more um, ungodliness. Justin Meyer, like I said, uh, for church, he was at our house Friday for lunch and he said that he was preaching on baptism over at Beauty Mountain. He was laughing. He said that being a Baptist, he said that he's got a few messages on baptism as a good Baptist would. Um, And that's true that um, Baptist would know a thing or two about baptism. Um, when I first started pastoring, um, I was in a discussion with some pastors about baptism—not Baptists, but uh, of other stripes—and and I I thought the the discussion was open and shut. As I talked to them, I'd read a lot of books on baptism, and and just felt that there's no justifiable reason for uh, infant baptism, and if one would just look at the key text, it should be as plain as the nose on your face that um, that believers should be baptized and you shouldn't baptize babies. well, when I started talking to these other people a um, couple uh, baby baptizers in fact, I found out that we were talking on two different planes what what they were saying um, and what I was coming from. We weren't even on the same page, let alone um, in the in the same area. So I read Second Timothy because God has called pastors to read and rightly divide the Scriptures. Uh, a pastor needs to handle the Word of God accurately and truly. And so, what had happened when I began to talk to these other guys about baptism, I would go to what probably you and I, what everyone in here might think of when you're going to talk to somebody about the issue, uh, certain key texts, and I was surprised that they agreed with me on what I was saying, and the reason was was because they have a whole different set of, um, a whole different theology that backs up their interpretation of scripture. And so tonight I'm going to go over some reasons why I don't baptize babies by considering how the the baby baptizers get to where they are, and the reason I think it would be important for us is because we have to come to the scriptures with the with the right interpretation of those scriptures. Because you can either twist it out of context, or you can take it and make it say things that it just does not say. Um, in our day, there's two big errors among Baptists that we might even uh, fellowship with. One view takes such a little and small view of God's word as to twist it out of its context and say whatever we want it to say. Another view is to take the word of God and interpret it according to sound principles, but to use a faulty system. Um, And so in this view, you have a system that you believe is right. And you take that system and lay it on top of the Bible and say, my system is right. This is what the system says. And so everything I read is going to be interpreted in light of that system. It'd be like trying to learn to play the piano by ear with a piano that's out of tune. You could start picking it out and you might get the piano to play the music like you want it to. But when you go and play a piano that's in tune, it's not going to work. Or it'd be like trying to build the building out back if the level was off or the level was broken. And so when my level says everything's square and I'm going by this level, well, um, you know, it it, it was broken. It, It wasn't level at all. So if the tool you're using is broken, your results won't be accurate. And it's my contention that the tool or the theology, the framework that the baby baptizers use to justify baby baptism is wrong is wrong from the very beginning. And so if that framework is wrong, then everything else that follows it is wrong. And I'll tell you if you don't understand that framework and you start talking to somebody that believes that, you know they they might they might uh, give you a run for your money as far as uh, talking to you about this because once once they get you to admit their framework and and try to read the Bible through their framework, well then they interpret it the way you and I would interpret it. Meaning that they would take what the original author would say and they'd take the words as they are meant, but just using that other tool. And I'll be getting into that a little bit later on. But but the danger here is that there are some people who are being drawn into this covenant theology system because they do take a serious view of God's word and people long for people to take the Bible seriously. You know, if you just hear people twisting the scriptures and making stuff up out of the Bible, uh, you, no one wants to hear that. And so if you, you, if you think this other group over here takes the Bible seriously, then people are tempted to be drawn to that. I remember um, reading in one of the papers years ago, I think it was Brother Cockrell said that a lot of young uh, Baptists at that time we're being drawn away into uh, this Reformed covenant theology because of the Puritans and that they took the Bible seriously. But what they did not understand at the beginning was the framework is wrong. The, the, the system of covenant theology is faulty from the very start. And so if you take that and you lay it on top of the Bible, everything's going to be wrong. It's like a, a set of glasses, we might say. Um, that you know, if I'm wearing yellow tinted glasses and I put the glasses on, everything's going to look yellow. If I'm wearing sunglasses, everything's going to look dark. Everything that I see will be filtered through those lenses. And so if you've got the wrong lenses on, and you read the Bible through those lenses, you're going to be wrong. So um, I'm going to just think about a few of these things. I'm just going to sort of lay out what they believe, just so you can understand. Because, let's say you get um, a commentary. I like Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry's got a good commentary. John Gill has a good commentary. Um, I like to read those men, but both of those men um, have a covenant theology view of things. John Gill has a covenant theology from a Baptist perspective. Uh, Matthew Henry um, has a covenant theology view, so they will say things that we would agree with, but they might mean something else by that. And, and so, um, that is just that is the um, the danger that we. We might face. I don't think anybody in here is in danger of going and starting uh, to to leave the Baptist position and go off. But we do. um, I think it's good just to understand the other side, to just be wary of that, but also to appreciate our side. Um, So one reason I'm going to do this is because, Lord willing, next week I'm going to preach from our position. But I think we can better appreciate. The truth of our side if we understand how the other options just don't stand up and so we can stand and appreciate and love the truth of the church rightly and and know that not only is our position biblical but the other position is just is just wrong and i don't want to paint the other side falsely i don't want to be bigoted against another side either Um, it's not that people who baptize babies are dumb and it's not that they've never read the bible But I do believe they're wrong, and I believe there is a biblical um, reasoning for their their, um, error. So how would you defend the position if you're talking to a baby baptizer? So if someone asks you why you're a Baptist, why you baptize believers at this church, I would be fine with the Bible teaches by example and by precept in the New Testament um, believers' baptism by immersion. And there's not a thing wrong with that answer because that is, that is the position. But if you're reading something online or listening to someone, I want you to be aware that there's uh, some concepts that the other side uses that assume a lot going into the discussion. So why, why, do, I have to, why do I have to know this? Well, let's just say uh, Macy grows up and Macy meets a nice Presbyterian boy. And she brings that Presbyterian boy home and he wants Macy to go to the OPC, the Presbyterian Church. And, and so you want to talk to him about baptism. Well, um, what would you say? How would you defend it? How would you uh, go along with it? Or, you know, i use the boys. Maybe they go to school and some pretty Presbyterian girl wants uh, them to go to church with them. Well, how would you talk about baptism? What would you, what would you say about baptism? Well, you might say, well, the word baptism, if you read the Greek word, it means immersion. That's what the the word means. And they might say, yeah, that's true. It does. You might say, well, if if you replace baptism with immersion throughout all the New Testament, it fits. And they say, yeah, that's true. It does. And you might say, "Uh, give me one example in the New Testament that says anything about babies being baptized explicitly. And they might say, well, um, we can come back to that, but you're right, there isn't one explicit example of this little baby being baptized in the New Testament. You say, well, just give me one example. And you might say, well, it doesn't say it explicitly. In the back of your mind, you say, well, this this is easier than I thought because I've just proven my point. Now, he might come back later in the discussion and talk about household baptism. Um, I heard this story, a uh, preacher was telling this story about uh, how to address that issue. He said uh, there was this Lutheran, and Anabaptist, talking about baptism, and he goes to the household baptism in, in the book of Acts where the Philippian jailer was baptized with his household. And that Lutheran says, Surely you believe that there must have been one wee little baby in that Philippian jailer's household. Surely there just must have been one little baby in that household. And the Anabaptist said, No, the youngest child in that house was a 16-year-old boy. And Luther looked at him funny. He takes his Bible and hands it to him and he said, Show me in the text, show me in the scriptures where that it says there was a 16-year-old boy in that house. Show me what verse it says that. And he says, Well, it's in the same verse as that wee little baby you're trying to baptize. You know, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. So you might say every example in the Bible in the New Testament is believers' baptism. Every historical scriptural record is believer's baptism. John was sent from God to preach and to baptize, and the only ones he baptized were those who repented and trusted in Christ. See, I don't have to prove there weren't any babies there. The person pushing infant baptism are the ones that are going to have to prove that they were there unless, unless you um, fall for their or their paradigm. Because at this point, he might start asking you some questions. He would say, Do you believe in the unity of Scripture? You say, Yeah, I believe in the unity of Scripture. And you, then he might say, Well, do you believe in one covenant of grace seen in different administrations in the Old and the New Testament? And you say, Well, I, that's kind of funny. I haven't heard it put that way, but yes. I believe that God saves people in the Old Testament and the New Testament by faith. Yes, I believe that. Do you believe that there's one people of God in this covenant? Well, yes. Do you believe that God established a covenant with Abraham? Yes. Do you believe that God's commands are in effect until they say he says they're not? You might say yes. Did God tell Abraham and Moses to circumcise all people in the covenant community, including the babies? Yes. He says, now you tell me where God said to stop doing that. If there's one covenant of grace in different administrations, you prove to me that, that we're not supposed to give the sign of the covenant to infants anymore. See, what, they, what they've done is made a, a system to where there's one covenant of grace under different administrations. And if And if they go through and they walk you through that, and as soon as you say yes, there's one covenant of grace in different administrations, they got you. Because now they put you in a position where you have to prove that children aren't baptized rather than finding scripture that says that they are. Because what happens is they say that there's one covenant in different administrations. So there's the moses administration and then the new covenant they say is just a different administration of that one covenant of grace and so if children are in the the old testament take the sign of the covenant and it's the same covenant of grace then children in the new covenant get it. and they say well it's just better because just in the old testament boys could only be circumcised but in the new testament boys and girls both can be baptized it's much better See, with this reasoning, you have to go back and prove that circumcision was not changed to baptism. And you can't do that because you can't prove it, prove that negative because you've, you've already taken the bait and accepted their covenant theology, their framework. See, their framework is there's only three covenants. And once you accept that framework, then you go back and lay it on top of the Scripture And you say, okay, now there's only one covenant of grace, so that means there's only one assembly of people, this universal assembly of Israel, and then Israel and church are the same because there's continuity between the the Old and the New Testament. There's a unity between the Old and New Testament. See, you've agreed that there's a continuity there. You've agreed with them that there's one covenant, and now they say, well, Israel is the church circumcision, baptism, and and all these different things. That's a system or method of interpretation. Now, now you practice this every day. Every time you read something, you practice this. You practice a method of interpreting something. Um, Some people have a chip on their shoulder, hermeneutic, and hermeneutic is a method of interpretation. And what I mean by that is they'll get on Facebook and everything they read, they read with a chip on their shoulder. Have you ever seen something on there where somebody says, Boy, it's a nice, nice weather today. It was good to go out for a walk. And then you read a comment, What are you saying? I'm lazy? You know, that, that everything somebody reads, they think that you're attacking them. And you're like, Well, I haven't even given you a second thought in weeks. You know, I'm not, I was just talking about it was a nice day. So what they do is they, they take their, their notion of having a chip on their shoulder and thinking that the whole world is out to get them, and everything they read, they believe that you're attacking them. So they're they're reading it wrong. They've got a a lens or framework that they read everything from, and it makes them reinterpret. So how do we read the Bible? We read the Bible um, as Baptists to arrive at the truth. we don't take what we believe to be the truth and then go back and read our Bible. But we derive our beliefs from the Bible. See, that's a big difference. And so the Baptists who hold to the covenant theology have a confession. And that's a 1689 London Baptist Confession. They say, we believe this confession because it's biblical. And so what they do is they take that confession and they take that covenant theology and they lay it on top of the Bible. And so now they read the Bible through the lens of that confession. But that is backwards. I believe we derive our truth from the Bible, not from anything outside of the Bible. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a confession of faith. I don't think there's anything wrong with writing down a system of theology and say this is what I believe the Bible teaches. But I do believe it's wrong to take what men have written and use that as the infallible guide to tell us what the Bible says. And so covenant theology takes their their covenant their system and puts it on top of the Bible, and then reads that back into the text. So they take this framework or this grid, and they use it to interpret the Scripture. So the the confessions are their framework. Um, what Reformed churches believe is their framework. But that, that, in reality, becomes their starting point. And this is a silly argument, but have you ever talked to somebody that believes the earth is flat? Well, they will say, the only reason you believe the earth is round is because you've believed a lie. And they say, you've interpreted everything you see by the framework of the lie that you've been told. You don't look at the evidence, you just look at what you've been told and you accept it on face value. Well, it's the same thing with them. They believe that the earth is flat and every piece of evidence they see is interpreted by their system. So no matter what you say, they'll say, well, that's just because you're just saying that because that's what you've been told. Same thing with dinosaur bones. An atheist and a six-day creationist will look at the same bone, same skeleton, same evidence, and have drastic different opinions about how old the earth is. Why? Because of the framework that they have. We'll come, to the Bible, we'll come to the dinosaur bone and say, well, the Bible says God created the earth in six twenty-four 24-hour days. And you read the genealogies, and it can only be so many thousands of years old, so this has to be less than that. Well, the person who doesn't believe the Bible will say, well, science says this, and, and so forth. They'll interpret their data through a different framework. I have a hermeneutic, you have a hermeneutic, you have a method. We all, we all do this, but what we try to do, what I try to do, is come to the Scripture and understand the meaning of the original author. To know that Scripture is inspired of God and infallible, and there's one human author, or one divine author of the Scripture, written throughout thousands of years by different men, at different times in different ways, but there's one divine author of Scripture, and that it was revealed to us progressively, but in these last days, the Lord speaks to us through his son, and that we can, from the New Testament, understand um, the, the shadows and the types that were put forth in the Old Testament. But what the scriptures teach us is, is what we learn from that is what the original authors had in mind whenever they wrote it. Not, let's reinterpret the Old Testament to say what we want it to say in our framework. So covenant theology believes that there's continuity between the old and the new. And hopefully if there's a covenant theologian in here that they wouldn't disagree too much with what I said. I'm trying my best just to lay it out exactly how they believe it and try and be fair in representing their view. See, they take the framework of their theology and set it on top of Scripture. I've heard many Reformed Baptists use those very same words in describing what they believe. They'll say, in fact, this is the best way to interpret scripture because um, we need the church of the past and the church universal to help us to understand um, what the scriptures say. And if you talk to them, they'll call you a biblicist. As a pejorative, they'll call you a name. So you're just a biblicist. You don't don't believe that uh, you can learn anything from the past. Well, that's not true, but I do believe we derive our truth from the scriptures and not from confessions and so forth. Um, the more continuity that you see between the old testament and new the more you'll be drawn to covenant theology and i hear a lot of preaching by baptists now that try to go back into the old testament and find the church in the old testament and they'll go back and try to find some connection between israel and the church And that's getting dangerously close to covenant theology. And and once you go down that path, you might as well just um, hang up the, you know, lock the doors and and walk away because you've given up the Baptist position. Um, I've read one uh, Presbyterian man said there's no such thing as a Reformed Baptist. You can't be a Reformed Baptist. And he said because being reformed means that you believe the whole system. And he said one of the key pegs in this system is the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the the, the, the church was in the Old Testament as Israel, and that uh, circumcision comes over to baptism, and that the children are baptized in, in the covenant community. He said you can't be reformed unless you hold to that position. And I would agree with him. I think that's a good assessment, that that you can't truly be a covenant theologian if you don't bring the whole package with you. You can't have that package that was built to accommodate baby baptism without, um, and do away with that part of it. Listen to what J.I. Packer wrote concerning covenant theology. He said, First, the gospel of God is not properly understood until it is viewed within a covenantal frame. Second, the Word of God is not properly understood until it is viewed within a covenantal frame. Third, the reality of God is not properly understood until it is viewed within a covenantal frame. So he says you can't rightly understand the gospel unless you first understand covenant theology and lay that on top of the gospel. And he said you can't understand the Word of God until you take that covenantal view Laid on top of the scripture, so he said. Third, you can't understand it until uh, you can't understand God until you do the same thing. That's probably news to the Apostle Paul. And it's probably news to the early Christians because covenant theology, as he proposes it, was a development um, around the the Reformation. All right, so that that's why they keep, they always go back to that time period because that's when. Uh, this was fashioned and formed. So, so let's get back to baby baptism. So now, that, that's, how, that's the first step, is accepting covenant theology. So what is covenant theology? Well, um, to be fair, there's two Presbyterian camps mainly. Um, one of them believes that there's just one covenant, monocovenantal and the the other group is three covenants. And that's what I'll look at, but it all boils down to to the same as far as we're concerned with infant baptism. So they believe there's three covenants in the Bible. A covenant of redemption, which is between the Trinity. So before the foundation of the world, the Father, Son, and Spirit covenanted to save. So the Father chose before the foundation of the world. The son was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so they said that it's called the covenant of redemption. Well, that that is what the, the um, book of Ephesians, chapter 1, calls. Now, we might not call it the covenant of redemption, but we do believe that God has one people and that the Father chose to save that one people before the foundation of the world. And the son... Um, uh, the son Uh, was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that he would come and do the Father's will, and that he would give himself for the people of God. Well, then they said there's a covenant of works with Adam. That's the second covenant, that God made a covenant with Adam as its federal head. But then they said there's a third covenant. The third covenant is a covenant of grace. And God promised to save those who come to him by faith through his son. And God works in this one covenant of grace in different administrations. So you got the Moses administration, you got the, the Abraham administration, you got the Christ administration. So what's the problem with this? As you said that, you might not have thought too much about it. Well, see the problem is, the Bible doesn't say there's just three covenants. And you can go and you can you can Google this if you want to. Um, you can go and uh, look up what covenant theologians just say, and they'll say that. Well, no, the Bible doesn't say that there's three covenants, but this is the framework that we've used to come to that conclusion. And they'll say, well, you believe in the Trinity, don't you? The Trinity's not in the Bible, so um, just because a word's not in the Bible doesn't mean that it's not true. But they're taking a big leap here by saying there's only one covenant of grace, and God just deals with people in in different times under that one covenant. But the Bible says that there is a creation covenant that God made with Adam. The Bible does say that there was a covenant with Noah. And the Bible does say there was a covenant with Abraham. The Bible does say there was a covenant with David. And the Bible also says there's a new covenant. That's twice as many covenants as covenant theology would propose. So what they do is they take the covenant of creation, the covenant, with, or the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David, and they flatten it to make it all fit within that one covenant. Because the covenant that God made with Abraham is not the same as the one he made with David. And it's certainly not the same um, as as the new covenant. And it's 100% not the same as the one with with Moses. So what they do is they, they flatten it out to make it all fit. So they shave off the edges. So, you know, if you got a square pegs and a round hole, well, you just get your, your sander out and sand the edges off the square pegs and it'll eventually fit. Well, you, you, if you do that, you've changed... That square peg is no longer a square peg, and so to make all these covenants into one, they flatten it out and they sand it down to and reduce it to it all fits. And that that is taking the system and reinterpreting the Bible, not taking what the Bible says and and drawing our theology from that. It goes back to hermeneutics, how you interpret the Bible. Well, what's these covenantal conclusions? Well since there's one covenant in, in different administrations, they'll say the sign is still there, but it changes. And they'll say, well, you go back, God told Abraham in his covenant of grace that his children should be circumcised and they're part of the covenant. And you go a little bit further and you see that Moses picked it up and, and they had the children circumcised. Well, then you go a little bit further into the New Testament and you have a covenant with God's people there and And Israel um, forsakes the Lord, but the the true people of God, the true Israel, is the church, and the church has been in existence this whole time. so the true church continues this uh, covenant relationship in the New testament and so instead of of the the circumcision which was was showing the putting away, you have this new instance of, of baptism that does the same thing, and these children are in the covenant. That's how they work around this. John Fesco was a Presbyterian professor, Reformed Theological Seminary. He wrote a book on baptism that I read, and he tried to, he tried to make these dots. So he, he, he wrote a whole book on their position. He goes through the history of infant baptism, and he tries to connect how he does this in this work. And so what he does is he takes extra-biblical resources and tries to connect baptism to the Old Testament. So he says, you can read in history where they baptized proselytes. I don't think so. I, um, all I could find was history written a couple hundred years after the time of Christ, talking about what they did before Christ's time. Yeah, you don't, you don't, I, don't, I couldn't even find a history to where... They were actually talking about that. And so you don't find evidence until later on, after the time of the apostles, that the Jews practice any sort of baptism. And then he said, well, the, the Levites washed. Yeah, but that's not the same thing as baptism. Just because you have somebody washing in something doesn't mean that you can connect it to baptism because it's for different purposes and different reasons. Then he's trying to take any imagery of washing or sprinkling and connect it to baptism. Well, it says sprinkling here in this verse, and and we sprinkle, so that must be baptism. Well, then he goes to Peter's mention of the flood and Paul's mention of the Red Sea in the New Testament and says, well, see, it's there. But the problem is, all that does is say that there were what baptism represents in reality for us. um, Peter goes back and uses examples from the the Old Testament, not that they were baptized, but what baptism speaks to. So that doesn't say there's baptism in the Old Testament. All that does is say this is what baptism means. So I'm going to quote Fesco here at length, just so you can hear what he's saying. He says, unlike the myopic constructions of baptism that narrowly focus on the New Testament and the meaning of the word baptism, baptism is not exclusive New Testament phenomenon but emerges in the opening verses of the Bible. Did you know that? Um, Baptism is in the opening verses of the Bible. If I would have said tonight before it started, I said, where does baptism start? Well, you would have went to one of the Gospels and said, well, I hear John, there's a man sent from God whose name was John. No, um, he said baptism was in Genesis 1-2, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. That's what he's talking about. He said, now how in the world do you get baptism out of that? He took the framework. He took the framework, laid it on top of the Bible. He took his, his covenantal glasses, put on those covenantal glasses, and said, okay, there's one covenant of grace, so I'm going to read my Bible with, with that in mind. And if there's one covenant of grace in different administrations, then the first place I see water, I'm going to start looking for baptism." And the funny thing is, people will laugh at Baptists for, for talking about uh, baptism so much, and here he goes and reads baptism into the Spirit descending upon the waters, in any, any event. He says, Any treatment of the doctrine that does not take Old Testament origins of baptism into account has hardly scratched the surface regarding its redemptive historical significance. However, it's clear that the baptisms, the Old Testament and the New Testament, are covenantal and corporate in nature. In other words, there are no individual standalone baptisms. Therefore, those who look to Christ by faith, adult or infant, have this message of the gospel of Christ visibly preached in the word and sacrament through their baptism. Now, listen to that again. Those who look to Christ by faith, adult or infant, and you tell me how that infant is looking to Christ by faith. And you tell me how that doesn't lead to, to, uh, to um, baptismal regeneration. How can, you, how can you say those words and, and then not recognize that that will lead a person to believe that that water saves them? He said, any theology of baptism... Must be founded on both testaments and grounded in God's covenantal dealings with his people. Applying the sign of the covenant to infants, apart from profession of faith, is not foreign to Scripture. God commanded that male infants receive the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament in the absence of a counter command. Now, remember what I said about uh, where they would say, Now that you believe in, now that you admitted it, show me where it stopped. That's is what he's saying. In the absence of a counter indicative command as well as continued unqualified use of the household formula, not only do women now receive the covenant sign, but so do female infants. So that's what they've done. You believe in all this, right? Okay, well, show me where it stopped. Show me where um, circumcision does not become uh, infant baptism. Show me how that, that you know we have to prove that it didn't exist. So you can't accept their framework. You can't accept covenantal theology framework because the Bible speaks of more than one covenant. There's one people of God, the elect, and God saves by faith or by grace through faith, whether it's Moses, whether it's Abraham, whether it's Noah, whether it's Elijah, David, Paul, by grace through faith. But God deals with his people at different times and in different ways. And then in those different times and those different ways are the covenants that God has laid out. God dealt with Noah in his time in a certain way, and he dealt with Abraham and his people in a certain way, and he dealt with Moses and the Israelites different than he dealt with um, uh, Abraham and his people. Not that they were saved in a different way, but they were in different covenants. Every one of us drove more than a half a mile to church right? Every one of us turned the lights on when we got home. Every one of us are sitting now under the electricity. You're not supposed to light a fire in the old covenant on the Lord's Day. And we're here on the first day of the week and not the seventh. Right? So, so God deals with us differently than he deals with Israel. Israel was a nation. We are an assembly of people of all of all tribes and peoples and so forth. They are different covenant. So by taking their framework of covenant theology, accepting that there's one covenant from Abraham to now, you you bought the whole farm. You bought the whole farm as soon as you accept those terms. My point is, and the reason I read from our text this this evening, that you have to rightly divide the word of truth. That means you have to rightly interpret it. From what I understand, the the word was used in... um, in cutting out material so Crystal uh, has made clothes she made me a vest before she made dresses, clothes for the kids she'd have material laid out and she'd have a pattern and she'd cut the material out according to the pattern and put it together Paul was a tent maker so what he do? he'd take his material, he'd lay it out and he'd cut it out according to the pattern he rightly divided it he says "Now this part I'm going to need for the flap of the tent, and this part I'm going to need over here, so I'm going to rightly divide it. I'm going to cut it the right way, um, the way that it needs to be cut. Well, that's the way we need to do the Bible. Rightly divide it. And not say, here's my covenantal pattern, and I'm going to lay on top of it and cut it out, but I'm going to say, what does the Bible say? And compare Scripture with Scripture. And derive the truth from God's word, not from a confession, and not from reformed men of the past, but from, from what God says. So, whenever our imaginary Presbyterian uh, suitor comes walking around, and, and says, let's talk about baptism. And he says, well, do you believe in one covenant of grace? Just stop, bust right there, and you say, well, you show me where that's at first, and then we can keep talking. You show me. You show me where the scriptures outline. There's one overarching covenant from the very beginning. You show me where the Bible says that. Not where. Not. Not your assumptions. Not what the confessions say. But you show me where the Bible says that, and then we'll go on. But until you can show me that, then, then you know the, we're not. We can't even discuss things. Baptism is for a particular purpose, for a particular way, and for a particular reason. You don't read about it in the Old Testament. You don't read about the act of baptism in the Old Testament. You also don't read about the purpose of that. Because baptism is a New Testament ordinance for his New Testament church for a New Testament position or reason. So is covenant theology true? No. The Bible doesn't teach a continuity between the nation of Israel and the institution of the church. The Bible doesn't say that the church replaced Israel. The Bible doesn't say that the church was in the Old Testament. There is one plan of redemption in God, but Israel as a nation is not the same as the church, as an as assembly of believers. And to accept that, you've not only accepted infant baptism, but you've accepted um, the church of the Old Testament You've, uh, accepted, um, amillennialism. You've accepted all millennialism. Um, You've accepted, you know. Well, there's there's some premillennialists, I suppose, but majority all millennialism. The old covenant was temporary, and it's over. It's not a different administration. You can't say that there's one covenant of grace in different administrations. Whenever the Bible clearly teaches one of them's over and another one started. You can't say that something continues if it's over, right? So it's not the same. Baptism is for believers. The Westminster Confession of Faith says the efficacy or the power of baptism is not tied to the moment of time when it's administered yet, notwithstanding by the right use of the ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited, conferred by the Holy Ghost to such whether of an age infants as the grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will, is appointed in time. Their confession, the covenantal framework that's laid on top of the scripture says that it is a means of grace that's truly exhibited. and given by the Holy Spirit um, at at baptism. Not only offered, but exhibited. Now you talk to them and they say, well, I don't believe in baptism or regeneration. Well, then something's got to change. Your system has to change, your confession has to change, or you have to change. Because, let me ask this, if a person was circumcised in the Old Testament, were they in the covenant or not? Yeah, they're in the covenant. Were they an Israelite? Yes, they were an Israelite. Well, they said, well, they weren't an Israelite indeed. Oh, well, what's the difference then? Well, they have to believe by faith. What did John the Baptist say whenever he said people come to be baptized? He didn't say, are you an Israelite? you want to be in the covenant community? He said, no, repent of your sins. He said, get out of here, snakes and vipers, and we we'll come back with repentance, the fruits of repentance. They're two separate and totally different, um, different things. So just know that this framework is false from the beginning. And just be aware that, that, that is what the bas- well, that's what the real issue is. Why do we baptize? Because the New Testament tells us what it's for and how to do it. And, but if you want to talk to somebody about infant baptism, just be ready to know that um, the real issue behind that is that covenant theology.